What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod Quarantine Edition number 10, 9, somewhere up there. Uh, my name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host who always outwits, outlasts, and outplays <laughs> the other podcasters, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Saved all my fire tokens for this moment, man. We're here. Survivor Season 40, over. Getting that, uh, getting those three advantages, uh, just like Natalie. You're back in the game, dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're gonna be talking quite a few things this week. We got some some music. Uh, we obviously have some TV. Maybe maybe a movie. We'll we'll see how we feel for you at the, here at the end. But um, before we get going, hit that subscribe if you're on YouTube. So that's YouTube.com/slash/nostalgiapod. Go to SoundCloud.com/slash/nostalgiapod. Find the podcast any way you want to, and especially iTunes follows, subscriptions, and reviews really help. Follow us on Twitter at NostalgiaPod. Dave, as you mentioned, Survivor Season 40, Winners at War. You tuned back in for the first time in how long for this? So I had to do some digging to figure that out exactly. I think it's been about 10 years. I think I stopped watching around 2009, 2010, around there. And it was basically just out of my mind until I want to say maybe last year, 2019, when there's some controversy and uh, ethical questions started popping up with the show and it got back on my radar and I heard about the uh, all winter season and then I heard that people I remembered were returning and that piped my interest and here we are. It's, and uh, here it was pretty are. good. I'm happy to be back. um well i'm I'm glad that you're back too man because this was a hell of a season uh i had tuned into survivor very early on like right when it first began but then kind of tuned out when we got to college um but i I tuned back in for i think the last five or six seasons so really as the game has evolved with hidden immunity idols on the island um obviously uh, they introduced fire tokens and extinction was a, a one-time thing that they then brought back for this season. So this season they brought back 20 past winners. One of the most uh, um, competitive seasons of reality TV I think I've ever seen. And man, what was I think so fantastic about this show is that well, one, there's just so much strategy at play constantly within the season 40 that they almost just didn't have enough time to show all the moving parts every time leaving um leaving i think so much to be desired for just the other things going on the island like i know we've talked about this but like just seeing like their life outside of the strategy of the game but it was such a uh, strategy packed season that it was uh quite quite a show um what what did you like about the season what what were you glad that you for. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's just the the top level gameplay, the 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 strategy of it all. I think in in past seasons, the disparity in like survivor IQ can sometimes lead to landslide wins, like uh, Kim's for, uh, past uh, win. So I've been told. Um, but yeah, in this case, it, it, it was I feel like it, mistakes were magnified. You know, um, think of people like Danny or Adam, and then. Uh, successful strategy actually was, you know, need to be better than normal to actually make it in season 40. So it's pretty, pretty nuts, but yeah, uh, the whole, like we need 90 minute episodes or at least 
throw up a lot more on like CBS All Access or something. Uh, it became pretty obvious because like there was there was what no reward challenges really, um, and no like no like a surviving. You know, like when I, I think I first started with uh, Africa, and mm-hmm. or Australia, I forget. And back then, you know, you'd see a lot of like the fishing and the surviving and the cooking and 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 usually a lot of the misery that comes with you know these people losing tons of weight and <laughs> starving in, in 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 you know the jungle somewhere for uh, a month, you know. And like we just didn't get any of that at all. It was just lots of strategy, and I like seeing that too. But I, I feel like there's a whole other part of the game, maybe the more traditional angle of it, that we knew still existed and happened, but just wasn't actually shown to us, you know. So, which we could have got more of that. The things that has really evolved about Survivor, and that was specifically uh, a, a major part of this season, is the strategy came into play at tribal council. Now when survivor first started, it was like everybody went into tribal council with a plan and it was kind of like playing poker in a sense where you were like, you don't really show your hand. You just kind of have to try to bluff the other person and then pull off moves that way. But over the last couple seasons, and it really was prominent in this season is how much um, the strategy really was like, this is what the plan is going into tribal council, but who knows what's going to be said or what people are reading or what, uh, little nuances they're picking up in someone's inflection that they're like, oh, there's something going on here. Yeah, totally. Um, are you a fan of the whole live ca- tribal council thing where it gets really uh, hectic and people are out of their seats and whispering and it's just a never-ending loop for like five minutes? Do you like that? Do you wish they had like more restrictions or did you just like the anarchy? Uh, I love the anarchy because I think uh, one of the, the things about the survivor early seasons is when there was a plan in place and you just kind of knew what was going to come and made the end of the show very anticlimactic like especially when there was a really strong alliance that really wasn't willing to budge you'd go into tribal council and you'd basically be like after the immunity you know what's happening mm-hmm. but now you go into tribal council and things can shit who won this season spoiler alert for anyone that's watching this review and doesn't know who won um Tony in several tribal councils was actually calling shots within the tribal council and how that played out to the jury, which having the jury present for pretty much the whole season with the extinction mm-hmm. Island being a part of it was also a very interesting new aspect to it. Um, I thought was, was just another level of gameplay that they added of how you're building your resume, how you're presenting yourself throughout the entire game to the people who are going to be casting that vote at the end. Did you like it though? uh yeah sure i guess um at times i felt like denise a little bit though like can we just uh can 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 you uh make all your schemes and get on with it you know like i get the need to to reconvene with your allies and stuff but um yeah the edge edge being there and having everyone in the game actually mattering at the end is pretty cool i guess i don't think i really like the edge twist itself though Mm. i think i could like it more if fire tokens were also um tweaked you know like the whole survivor economy has been added but it just seemed like there was a sense of these will really matter at the end and then after watching this season you think about sandra giving up a immunity idol for one token Mm. like ethan nearly killing himself on the edge for one token like for what you know and then natalie being able to get what all those advantages because she had been on the edge the longest and have idols meanwhile people that haven't actually gotten voted out didn't have the ability to just buy idols like i don't know i just felt like it was a little uh 
a little skewed in terms of like fairness, but uh, now I didn't win anyway. So I guess it's okay. Yeah, it's hard. So um, his name was Chris Underwood won uh, after coming back from extinction a couple seasons back. I think that was season 38. So two seasons before and watching that season, I actually felt very disappointed with him coming in and winning. Um, And I, I get like, okay, so he had to, survive on this island, win his way back in, and then somehow navigate no alliances and coming into this totally new voting uh, block, basically. But it also feels a little bit cheap when you so much of the show is following the people who are in the game um, and then someone who's been out of the game literally from the first night comes in and makes it down to the final three. I can understand, I think, how some people feel a little bit frustrated by that. And I think that is an aspect of the game maybe they need to tweak when they send people back in from extinction um, and when they cut that off, I think that can maybe uh, allow uh, someone like that to build their resume a bit. I was actually surprised that Michelle didn't get any votes and Natalie got all of her votes because I know Michelle was kind of on the bottom the whole time, but often I noticed that uh, people reward that kind of survival tactic where you know, you're kind of just getting by and just keeping the target off of you in a sense, but people really seem to benefit Nat or, really give Natalie credit for how much work she put in on extinction to get back in the game and shake things up. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking of like, there's been past champions that, you know, not quote, not the most deserving winner, but usually they were part of like the majority Alliance and still had a pretty comfortable ride to the end. Think of like, like Amber and survivor all-stars or something. And yeah, yeah Michelle kind of just, finessing the whole time when she threw her stat out about i was at like was it 15 of 19 tribal councils or whatever it was and i was like that that's pretty daunting and considering she really didn't have an alliance the whole time um it, it's a good resume it just doesn't quite stack up the tony and i mean we, we've been talking about this for weeks so had lots of people but just the inability of damn near everyone to see Tony as the threat that he was, which is baffling to us. Like the one person who really saw it out and got a lot of points in my book was Kim and Kim had a really good effort and she just got snuffed out and killed off by Tony. But Mm -hmm. like, like Sarah was, it was in the finale, right? She was like, you know, I don't know why they, they see this. And like, you know, she had a really good speech about gender bias and survivor, which is a, I think a, talking point that's we've had for a while and it was good to really have that out in the open but i think you have to remember that tony was showing the jury in tribal council calling out hey uh ben don't play right i got we got this like he, he was visibly dictating the shots whether he was in full command of that lines or not so yeah uh tony was pretty much perceived threat <laughs> like when natalie's like spilling the tea when she comes back and sarah's all confused i was just very surprised and like yes like maybe that's the edit we were getting you know, like uh, we have much more perspective, I guess, than right. people actually there in the moment. But I, I just find that found it baffling basically the whole time. And you think of people like Ben and especially Nick and even Denise who had had chances to really flip it up and get rid of Tony. And they just tried to ride with Tony as long as they could until they couldn't anymore. And it just it just became a self-fulfilling prophecy, man. Like he, he lost some immunities right at the end. There was a chance and it just didn't happen. Yeah. It, it was uh, it was the moment when Tony was calling those shots and they panned to Boston Rob or they cut to Boston Rob and he goes, man, Tony is a Don in this game. Or he said something along those lines. Uh, the boss, Tony's I think like he said. This. And I was like, if Boston Rob, yeah, if, if, if Tony's 
sitting there making the calling shots and you have Boston Rob who probably is the most respected player in the jury at that point since Sandra had gone home saying that you know that he's gonna be the winner at the end so to not be somehow making a play for him is almost like and I think this also speaks to the game Tony played where he did make everybody feel like he was their friend and he really wanted to go to the mm-hmm. fun take me to final three. And then Jeremy was like, what about me? And like, they all kind of were like calling him out, but good on Tony for making them all feel that safe. And like, he was actually there for them that way. I, uh, I was really impressed with Tony. I didn't watch his season. So to see him come in and, and build a, a spy nest and be <laughs> kind of running all these aspects of the game and really snuffing things out. Like even how he knew, or had an inkling that Natalie had an idol and right. Sarah was kind of like calling the shot. No, she doesn't trust me on this. Like I was just really impressed with how tuned in he was this season, how much work he put. And he definitely deserved the win. Yeah. Definitely. I wanted to ask you, who did you come in rooting for this season? Uh, yeah, I was rooting for the people that I was familiar with from the past. So like Rob Parvati, even, and there's even people that like I watched I watched Yule and Danny's seasons. I like I looked it up. I remembered I was looking up like storylines and things that happened. I remember stuff, but I didn't actually really remember them that much. I didn't actually really know Sandra from her first win. I didn't really remember her, and I didn't see her mm-hmm. uh, legend get grown when she won the second time. But yeah, I was just rooting for the older people. I just found that they had they had more narratives and and stuff. And I wasn't familiar with Tyson, but he seems pretty cool too, and everyone seems to like him. So yeah, just rooting for the older people in general. Once like they got snuffed out. I um, just kind of like went with the flow and took the underdogs and stuff. So I started rooting for Jeremy and Kim and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a little deflating to see like Ethan go real fast, who I also yeah. watched, and then Rob and, you know, Parv and all that. So I think a lot of people felt that. Maybe that's why the edge was actually good for this season because you got more of those moments with people that you had a really resisting relationship with already. Yeah, and I, I think they actually I, – I agree. I was rooting for Boston Rob, my number one guy. And I really felt like he had a good showing for going out pretty early. But I was uh, I was definitely also rooting for Wendell, who kind of went out early. He had a really poor showing in the season. But the final episode, on top of you know being this three-hour blowout episode with all these twists, turns, and, and really exciting gameplay – I was really impressed with what they did with at, after the um, return challenge where Jeff was going around and talking to Rob and all the people who are probably not going to be coming back to the show and really getting um, their perspective on what survivors meant to them. Hearing Ethan talk about how some of the money that survivor had donated actually funded um, research that found the medication that helped cure his, his blood cancer is just amazing stuff and like i found myself really moved by the way that they edited it put that together Mm -hmm. when rob and amber were talking i just was like man i stand this couple like survivor really has like has this way of um being just this show that i think encompasses uh really good reality tv where there's actual like strategy gameplay it's it's not just like that typical bachelor bullshit but Mm -hmm. then there's also the human aspect that i think you get in this sort of show more than you do in those sort of like uh, bachelor shows where the sob story is almost like you have to have one to get by. Do you, do you find yourself connecting with that aspect of the show as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in this case, because we already had a relationship with a lot of those characters, you really felt, uh, you know, felt their message and it did land. Um, I was just thinking, like, how many of these, this big cast, this stacked all-star cast of winners, how many of them do you think had the potential to actually come back? Like, there's a lot we can write off, right? I think Sandra's done, Rob's done, Amber's done, Parv's done. Seems like Tyson's done this season. Yeah. Tyson's (laughs) probably done. Jeremy, you know, uh, Ethan for sure. Yule probably like a lot, a lot, a lot of legends, Danny, you know, they're, they're probably all gone, never come back. So who, who, uh, do you think has the potential to actually return to this show? I mean, like a lot of recent winners were here, so they're they're probably Mm -hmm. who you'd pick, but yeah, I think, I think the, the three or four that I think are definitely, we're going to be seeing again are Wendell, Ben, Nick, and Michelle. I would say. And Natalie, I think if she wants to continue doing this, I mean, she's really into CrossFit. So she's definitely going to be in the shape to be competitive or at least continue to be in the mix. Um, but I wonder if her making it down to these final three and being a, a you know, she, she's been, hasn't been on the show for six, I guess, six years. She's season 29. So five and a half, six years. They might say that they want to start bringing in some new blood. But yeah, those seem like the, the three. Did you like Adam? Because Adam won season 33, so he's fairly recent, but I just could not connect with him. I found him actually quite annoying a lot of the seasons. So I, I kind of hope he doesn't come back, but he's he's up there too, I think. Yeah, he's definitely up there just, you know, given age. You know, it's funny. Wendell's actually a lot older than I thought. He's like in his like mid-30s, but mm-hmm. um, Adam's only in his late 20s. Yeah, Adam's someone who his just strategy, his angles seem to not really work from the jump. And again, we're just trusting the edit we get, but he, he, for someone who was supposed to be more tactical and like a survivor savant from his winning season. So I've been told that didn't really come across this time. And like the whole like feuding with Ben, Ben in general, was just like at the source of annoying feuds. Like I didn't care about his feud with Adam, nor did I care about his feud with Jeremy. But yeah, Adam, uh, it, it, if he was to get back to that, that, that more basic stuff, I feel like he kind of represents like a, a modern right now survivor fan, survivor champ. So yeah, I'd be open to it, I guess, but didn't really care for him this time. Yeah, I think Sarah is another person that we could see come back. You know, she also made it to final three um, or final four, I guess it is. And mm-hmm. she's season 34, so she's fairly new too. Um, and I think she'll probably want to establish herself separate from Tony after seeing the way that this, this season right. was edited. So, And she had a really strong moment, like you talked about in the one of the last tribals, talking about the, the gender bias on the show. And I think Jeff handled that pretty well you know giving her the lacina send off yes. so <laughs> some so, some really good moments i could see them coming back do you expect yourself to be tuned into survivor more moving forward yeah i think so i've come to appreciate it as like real life like fantasy sports and i really like that <laughs> so yeah it, i think it's just really fun and it's definitely the most engaging reality tv i've ever seen you know and like you said it's not just the trashy turn your brain off stuff you can really connect with and especially if they can somehow give us the other traditional elements of i just want to see these people surviving i want to see someone like cut themselves with their flint and steel i want to see all that bullshit too so if we can get that Mm. yeah i'll be totally in and i'm just curious like um jeff says it at the end of the finale they're committed to season 41 in this fall they're sticking to their schedule they were supposed to shoot this season uh, I believe in March and they had the, they, right before they were starting to go, everything started shutting down. So of course it hasn't happened. That would have been in Fiji, which is like their home base at this point. But now there's some talk about 
season 41 maybe being in the states i see survivor wild west being thrown out there uh i'm down with that in general just because it seems to be a switch up it was it was cool the early days too when there were like distinct locales right uh, yep. before the show starts settling in and just you know being somewhere in the pacific islands mm-hmm. yeah no i i think that would be a great decision and, and just giving something different um i I don't think Survivor has really made a misstep. And even in terms of the things I don't think worked as well, like the fire tokens or the extinction, it all adds an interesting element. So I think whatever they add would just add another factor to that gameplay. Just as we wrap up, I want to just throw it out there. So Sandra and Rob, definitely up there on the Survivor Mount Rushmore. Probably got to have Tony now. Mm -hmm. Do you have anybody that would definitely be up there for, for four? Yeah, I mean, what's that? Tony, Sandra, two-time champs, the only two, obvious. Rob, Rob a winner, and a runner-up. Yeah, de facto two-time champ. Right, general status about him. Um, I've seen some people saying that Rob's good but overrated, which I think is kind of an interesting case if you want you want to make it. Um, anyway, so not, at this point, it's just, it's just people I haven't totally watched. Like People really have Tyson up there. Um, yeah. Tyson, Parvin. I can't really speak to I can't really speak to a lot of the goat talk because I haven't seen enough of the show in the yeah. past decade. Yeah, I guess maybe if you're going just straight Mount Rushmore theory, maybe you'd have Richard Hatch up there only because yep. he was the season one winner and kind of probably one of the most famous winners that they've ever had. Just that the mm-hmm. show was a oh yeah, like 120 million people watched that finale of the first season, like yeah. insane insane something like that but i think natalie might have a case too coming in being a runner-up on winners at war after that i mean there's there's some people in the discussion so if, sure. if you are a survivor fan you're watching this tell us who, who would be on your mount rushmore i want to know what the right answer is so. you know i actually like to think about too like who are the best non-winners like you know they did survivor mm. second chance a few years back with people that didn't win but played before and i think of people like uh, like uh russell hance was it uh who's mm. very unpopular but noted like uh tactician and rupert like a, like a coach and yep rupert really popular yep. um siri right like there's a lot of good ones too so it's a fun thing to talk about too because it's, it's kind of like sports right like you, you, you oh, can yeah. make the case for a bunch of different people once you get past like the ring talk so it's it's, it's a lot of fun and that's why the show just endures because people just <laughs> they're interested in it definitely Definitely. Uh, all right, Dave, jumping into music, let's start with an up-and-coming artist that we've been talking, I feel like, about a decent amount recently as we've been talking about XXL Freshman, the list obviously coming soon. Chef G dropping his second, I guess, album project, one and only, uh, follow-up to last year's The Unlucky Lucky Kid. He uses the two Cs, too, like... like thick boy so i appreciate that um yeah chef not G. getting affiliated or anything with that spelling <laughs> nothing nothing to do with that no not at all um i appreciate this album from first minute i saw it because it was 25 minutes and i appreciate the quick listen um i also appreciated it because i felt like there was actually some decent songs in here and i was left pretty impressed with chef G. you know he's obviously related to the uh, the Brooklyn drill scene. Um, but this felt like a more like stripped down version of that. And he was trying to branch out with some other sounds on this a little bit more. 
and I was pretty impressed with one and only. How were you feeling after listening to it? Yeah, I think that's the main takeaway. What you said that Chef G has moved past the traditional expectation that we have for the sound of Brooklyn Drill uh, in itself, a relatively new sound. You'll notice that Axel Beats and A08 Mello are not here. You know, the, the super producers out of the UK who have basically produced all the major hits out of Brooklyn for the scene thus far, including Chef G's Breakout No Suburban, but they're not here. We have a producer who I'm not familiar with named Great John, who's um, from the New York area. And it's, we don't have those church bells and those mm-hmm. horror movie piano keys that we expect from the traditional sound. It's much more uh, mellower and almost just kind of simpler production. And that kind of growth in the sound reminded me a lot of when we talked about Hedy One and how he was evolving past the traditional UK drill that he had become famous for. So that kind of growth and is really cool to me and is kind of setting Chef G apart in his, in, in, in his borough, in his scene right now. I, I think, you know, two, two G's, we talked about growth and development uh, two, two G's and Chef G have major beef uh, due to uh, gang, gang ties and whatnot. But uh, obviously one of them made suburban then I made no suburban. Two G's made uh, suburban part two, and then Chef G recently released no suburban part two, which is on this project. And those are basically like kind of diss songs at each other. I like both artists, but let's hope nothing uh, comes out of that. I, w- I will say though that in uh, no suburban part two, uh, Chef G has kind of an instant quotable. I was heard that boy a snitch fish him out, which is just an obvious uh, six nine disc. You love to see it. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, it's like Chef G, who made an impression on Little TJ's very bad state of emergency mixtape, which we talked about last week. He made an impression though, just because I think he has a lot of presence whenever he talks. Mm-hmm. He has that kind of deep voice, but it's not as gravelly as Pop Smoke, right? Like it, it, it kind of has like that. Um, you can mistake him for being from London, which happened when he first blew up. But mm-hmm. I, I think he's kind of just a rapper's rapper. It's really cool. So, yeah, I thought I thought it was, it was good. There's a lot of songs I like. Yeah, uh, I thought there was a lot to like on here. A couple of songs that really stood out to me, uh, mostly for subverting my expectations, I think. Once I'm Gone, um, the way that he kind of has like the flute going going through it, it reminded me a little bit of an artist that we're not going to talk about today, um, Future, and who I think has incorporated flutes quite a bit into his work in the past and pretty famously. Um, I thought No, Sur- no Suburban Part 2, which I'm fairly certain is on our Best of the Year pod, uh, it is. podcast favorites already. Um, check that out, Nostalgia Best of 2020 on Spotify. Uh, I thought that was probably the best track off this album. Uh, really impressive showing. But then Tonight 2 also I thought was great. And Wait On Me also stood out to me. So, I mean, just even uh, jumping around, you can find something on here. And I, even the beginning, there was some good stuff. So mm. it seems like pretty quality. And, and I uh, definitely appreciate that he's not just uh, staying in his lane, that he's willing to branch out, and but doing it, it seems like pretty tastefully. What song stood out to you? Yeah, I also really liked uh, Second Intro, which is the first track, as well as Moody, the second song. Moody reminded me a lot of 
We Get Money, which was the big track off the Unlucky Lucky Kid last year. And, you know, those kind of songs, he just has that like Brooklyn attitude, you know, and he's talked about his reverence for Biggie, which you love to see from someone who's obviously uh, was not a coherent thought when Biggie actually died. You know, I think Chef G is just 21 years old. So it's really cool to hear that. And while he, I don't think he has like the, at to this point, like the, like the, the viralness that 5EO likes to ride for. And he doesn't seem to have the snarl that 22G's has. He still has a lot of presence on the mic. And I'm just, I, I really like him. I think he's probably the, the leader in the clubhouse in terms of who's making the best music right now out of these guys in the wake mm-hmm. of Pop Smoke's passing, of course. So it's just really cool. I mean, I mean, we talked about New York rappers like five times in quarantine because they're all just kind of popping up and doing stuff, you know? And, like it's just such a cool contrast to hear little TJ's like whiny ass, and then you have Chef G who sounds like he gargles drainal. Like there's there's so much there. So yeah, I'm, I like this, and I feel like the New Yorkers, man, they just they've been hitting us. You know, I guess next we need uh, we need Smoove L drop something. I guess, but every everyone who's mattered has really dropped in the past six weeks. It's been pretty fun. Dave um, wanted to give you a second because we were talking after the pod to just correct maybe a name or two that we didn't mention last week when talking about who's the king of new york right now and this seems like the best time to do it so just gonna <laughs> give you the floor real quick oh uh, yeah we forgot to mention cardi b <laughs> yeah we uh we really <laughs> dropped the ball on that one so anyone that that listened in was just like these guys are idiots yeah uh we we got most of them but cardi oh, somehow yeah. we, we noted i noticed it on our own you know after and, the fact it's not like and, someone had to comment <laughs> you know cardi is she probably lived i mean i don't know if she lives in the bronx still but she's from very close to me i mean i could get to the bronx in 20 minutes if i mm-hmm. wanted to right now so yep. uh big big miss by us there but chef g great showing on one and only check that out um polo g the goat his newest project album uh, this is, I guess, truly an album. 47 minutes long, 16 tracks. I, I want to let you kind of lead the way with Polo G because I, I had a very mixed feelings about this album. At points, I was really like, oh, this is uh, very solid, very like heartfelt, soulful music. And then at points, I was like, that, is this the same track? Am I skipping around? Um, felt very samey to me at times. It went out with a bang, though, and we'll talk about that, I think. Um, but how are you feeling about the goat from Polo G? Yeah, uh, I will agree that with 16 tracks, we could have cut a few of these. Not all of them uh, reach the same highs as, as I think the best songs on the track listing do. That being said, I really love this. Uh, Polo G is someone I've thought highly of for some time. And namely, I think he's just like, he's the best rapper right now out of Chicago. Mm. He's making the best music right now. And he, he's really cool because he's a product of the original drill scene out of Chicago. You know, uh, G Herbo, Chief Keef, and Lil Durk are kind of the, the forefathers of that. And they're all making music still. I think G Herbo and Durk in particular are probably making the best music they've ever made. Uh, G Herbo's PTSD album was easily his best. I wish we had reviewed that. We had let that pass. We had a busy week. And Dirk, too, who just dropped uh, Just Because Y'all Waited uh, 2, was also really good. And that kind of music is 
uh, special for just kind of highlighting the the pain that these artists have gone through in their lives living in tough circumstances in and around Chicago and people found that relatable across the globe hence why that kind of lyricism has since moved to Brooklyn and the UK in Polo G's case I think he has just a knack for making like really sticky songs that also have really meaningful lyrics like and if you, you can look at the reception to this this project I think it's really really positive and you know the whole like highlighting your pain sound is pretty in vogue like we get that from a lot of the southern guys now too think of NBA young boy who's absolutely huge superstar he's doing the same thing but he kind of has more of that like singy southern drawl to him in Polo G's case he almost has like this smooth way of delivering his music like he, he almost has like, he's almost like softly spoken yet there is a lot of punch behind what he's saying so in terms of just like highlighting the struggle music i think this is really top tier shit and like the highs are just really high to me so i I did really like it yeah i i think there's no denying that he's a a great lyricist and his verses are very strong i think that was the thing i found myself i actually listened to this when i was going for a run I, i found myself kind of getting lost in the lyrics and kind of actually like feeling like i was really understanding the picture he was trying to paint with a lot of things and it caught me i think because a lot of times, especially when I'm like working out listening to music, I kind of just really fall into the beat and the things going on around. Of course. But the fact he was pulling me in with his verses, I think, was kind of what I found very special about this album. But then as I zoomed out and was kind of just kind of feeling the music, I did find myself feeling like the tracks all kind of were just piano-based and um, the, I, I didn't feel that much variance in them. I think that's kind of where I was a little bit like eh, maybe this is this could have been uh, uh, cooked a little bit better or like you said maybe just trimmed a bit to make a more concise project but definitely I was I was impressed with his lyricism like you said it's interesting because when you were talking about the best music coming out of Chicago are you talking about only for this this scene or are you just seeing like in general he's the best artist out of Chicago right now right yeah well I mean we talk about Chicago hip hop a lot, right? Because on one hand it has a wealth of influential OGs, right? Kanye, Common, Lupe, right? And then it also is the scene of both music from the streets, drill and evolution of that. And then also kind of like where jazz rap is based out of right now in terms of chance and Saba and no name and people that are not, from Chicago, but are pretty close from Chicago, like Smino. Like, there's a lot going on in Chicago yeah. hip hop. And Polo G, I think, you know, once Chance took a step back last year, I think the lane was open for him. And I mean, you can certainly quibble, you know, such as the jazz rap people. In terms of people that are uh, like popular and mainstream, though, I think it's definitely Polo G. Wow. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really high compliment for him. So, Tell me what what songs off this album. What were like the the highs for you that you said were really high? Yeah, yeah. On um, I mean, I really like Twenty One. You know, he has that thing, a really quotable line where he's like, "Can't relapse off these drugs, man." R.I.P. to Juice, tweaking off these perks. I put my last one with you. Mm-hmm. Um, hearing him actually talk about how his friend and fellow Chicagoan who died of uh, ODing, 
uh, hearing that you like learn from that, I think means a lot. And because Polo G is so popular with the kids like Juice World, I really hope that's a message that lasts. But I think what blew me away in terms of lines was actually on I Know in the second verse, where he's kind of going through this whole story about talking about a kid and, you know, it could be autobiographical, I don't know, but he says, he kind of like, he kind of has this like, he like pitches the delivery a little bit and like almost sings it a bit, but he's like, by his auntie, he was molested as a baby boy, messed up his head, it even changed the way he plays with toys. And like, I ran that back a few times. I was like, fuck, man, that, that, that shit's hidden. And then um, I think the obvious, I mean, Juice World's feature on Flex, that was really strong as well. That was great to hear. Um, Heartless, I really like. That's an older song from last year, but I think that song's awesome. And then, I mean, the last track, Wishing for a Hero, DJ Chicago Kid, uh, that's sampling uh, Bruce Hornsby's The Way It Is, mm-hmm. made famous by Tupac in Changes. And he's not only just doing that sample, he's doing Tupac's Changes flow. And like Tupac, he's talking about some heavy shit in terms of how Malcolm X and Martin Luther King inspire him and talking about like race relations and police relations of right now. Like I, I was just blown away and like I've honestly like kind of made me tear up a little bit when I listened to it a second time. Yeah, even though a lot of that struggle I really obviously can't really relate to. So I, I think his highs are just really fucking high. And of course, um, let's not forget Go Stupid with Son of Her Vegas and Emily Chapa. That's a TikTok song right now too. So he's kind of just got the generic banger if you want it. Yeah. Uh, Go Stupid was um, the song I, I, I probably most associate him with because it is so, re- you know, in the TikTok, uh, I don't know, culture right now. Mm-hmm. But Wishing for a Hero, uh, that was what I would mention in terms of like going out with a bang. Because uh, like I said, I found myself near, especially at the end, and like a bit of it was redundant. And then yeah. that comes on and like noticing that he was – using roger hornsby's the way it is and copying copying the flow i just was like this is fucking crazy like i I, something that's totally unexpected totally shifted the mood at the end um i felt like it kind of ended the album on this really high note and it made me want to go back and listen to some of the other songs i thought that was an excellent choice and an impressive uh showing by him as well um so polo g i mean i think you said he's one of the ones that is uh freshman bound for sure right Oh, definitely. That's a lock. Yep. So, uh, with that, we should be getting that what, fairly soon, a couple weeks. If it's the June cover, we might get it this week or next. So, we'll, we'll know soon. We'll be talking about it when it drops. I'm sure we'll be talking about Polo G. So, we went from New York to Chicago. Now, we're going down south to North Carolina. Let's check in with part two of Moses Sumney's Gray, uh, which we talked about back in March, I believe, when it came out. Um, February, actually. February, yeah. And uh, at the time we talked about it, I think our main takeaway was that Gray Part 1 um, really showcases Sumney's uh, amazing vocal performances and seems like a, a bit of a step out of a romanticism, his uh, critically acclaimed first album. Um, in terms of, I think, direction and ambition it seems like he was trying to go off and and kind of write songs that were touching on more than just uh, interpersonal relationship which was the main part of a romanticism and kind of the human experiences around those after listening to part two do you you have any new takeaways from this was were the was there any songs or anything that really made you think uh differently from of great part one now you've heard the second part of the album 
I'll be honest, no. No, I don't think my opinion really changed, mainly because I already was holding Moses Sumney's talent and the great uh, prospect uh, in already high esteem, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of more confirmation of what we expect, as you said, just incredible vocal performance, but also just kind of giving you unexpected music more often than not, whether it's like modulating his voice, crushing this wild falsetto, whatever he might be doing, he does kind of change it up frequently, despite the fact that it always feels in the vibe of his album. And because his vibe is so unique, uh, it's hard not to just kind of be in wow. He, he's an artist that I have a hard time like describing and talking about because he has not a lot of like, reference points but yeah yeah, i guess like the themes of like was it mortality and identity that thematically it's similar to part one and um i don't know if any songs like blew me away or anything but it's just kind of the whole prospect like like there was that narration on uh and so what's the song called towards the back and so i come to isolation yeah that that sounded really cool um and in the beginning uh, the first track of this part to two dogs. I really liked that. Like there's like a second voice mm-hmm. in the back background of the production that kind of really added to it. And on bystanders, it really kind of builds up. Yeah. And, uh, there's definitely really cool moments, but overall, uh, uh, Moses Sumney, man, he's, he's just kind of hard to pin down. And that's the case once again. So 20 songs now for this gray album, 20 songs, about an hour, uh, I don't know if anything is like easy to like take away from the album. It's kind of just like a vibe. You just kind of float through, but uh, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. That the voice you're talking about, um, I think, I think they have a couple of spoken word parts is uh, Tai. Um, oh, I, I, my handwriting is terrible. I think it's Tai <laughs> Salasis and she's this Nigerian Ghanaian author. And she, a lot of what she was talking about was like the multiplicity of self and how, there's like the parts of ourselves that we show people, the parts of ourselves that we feel like aren't things we want to show people and, and how you kind of wrestle with being this whole person, but feeling like you can only show parts of yourself. And I really feel like that encompasses and kind of uh, is a good thesis statement for this album, right? Because it feel, you know, in, in, in that identity or the identity of the album as this expansion of ideas and of, um, direction for Moses to try some things while keeping his his own sound and, and this uniqueness I think he really took some some chances and, and did so, had some really cool production on here I think he had also had some really some collaborators that fit really well for what he was going for like James Blake Thundercat Oni uh Oniotrix or Onitrix or I Onitrix Point yeah. Never right yeah, yeah whatever um <laughs> but they they are kind of these unique song or, or uh, artists in their own right. And to have them kind of come in and help him flesh out these ideas while keeping mm-hmm. this like auteurmanship about it. You know, like yeah. the, the music videos he has are very interesting and unique to say the least. Um, he's just a very singular person. Um, and I think the fact that we can't, pin down a good way to describe him actually is probably the best way to describe him that there really is no other artist like Moses Sumney right now and that's what makes him so exciting so um 
I'm actually really ex- excited to talk next week about Perfume Genius, whose newest album is getting uh, kind of compared similarly to this album in terms of just like the inability to like define it and, and kind of using that duplicity of self. So mm-hmm. I think we'll be kind of bringing Gray into the discussion next week when we get to Perfume Genius. Um, you mentioned a couple of songs. I think the only one I really wanted to point out that you didn't mention was Me in 20 Years. The transition from Bystanders to Me in 20 Years is just so beautiful to me. Um, and those two songs paired together were the highlight of me for the second half of the album. But really the whole thing, you can find find something in each song that I think is just unique and, and wonderful. So. It's, it's worth a listen if you're not a Moses Sumney fan. We highly recommend him. And Dave, someone I know that you recommend. <laughs> highly. Charlie XCX. You know, when Charlie XCX first popped up, there was no way I thought I would still be, like, tuned into her and actually, like, increasingly more impressed with her as an artist 10 years later, you know, because... <laughs> uh, what I don't care was like her breakout hit and yep with Icona Pop and then a uh, boom clap and the fancy feature with Iggy those are like the three I think yeah big ones that were on the radio early on and she kind of just felt like this artist who was like kind of of the moment very like poppy and could easily fade away quickly and she's just really steered into this lane of like futuristic dream pop i guess might be the way to describe Mm -hmm. it where um she just is more and more fascinating to me with each album you know last year's charlie received a lot of acclaim got really good reviews um and it felt like she was kind of going away from this um almost like obscure dream poppiness more into like some mainstream poppiness with it and you know obviously having hame and christina and the queens on that album really helped but then she comes Mm -hmm. back with how I'm feeling now, which is very much the title is very accurate. It's been written in the last couple of weeks since this isolation and this, you know, stay at home order has been into effect, except all except for one song written and produced and constructed last couple of weeks. Is this an album, Dave, that continues that Charlie XCX uh, fantasticness? <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, the quarantine album, something that meant nothing to all of us just a few months ago. Of course, Charlie XCX released a really good one of these things because she's one of the few artists in mainstream pop music that kind of has the ability to adapt and change like that. Um, you know, her, her sensibilities in terms of like future pop and alternative pop uh, never, never, I think, went away when she was you know bringing more uh people into the fold last year with charlie but this opportunity to just as you said create a bunch of new songs from scratch mix all this stuff right now uh it just kind of plays into her hand like the diy-ness of it all so i I was just kind of you know i didn't really know what to expect right like like charlie last year has a lot of like um, kind of obvious songs that you you they're, they're familiar, right? Like "Blame It on Your Love" with Lizzo. That you know what that song is. And something like "Gone" is really engaging and easy to get into. And that was my favorite song last year. But then we have 
kind of like a heel turn, I guess, with how I'm feeling now because this is really wild synths and just kind of out there production the whole time. It's really wacky stuff and obviously very electronic as a lot of her stuff is. And it, it, it definitely reflects the time and I think it, it and the production really fits the, the mood she's carrying on uh, with the lyrics. So yeah, I, I liked it a lot. It was uh, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty nuts, man. Yeah, I I was blown away um, by this album. I think for two reasons. One, it does feel like it captures the moment really well, even if I don't know if if the sentiments of it are, uh, and I guess the message of it is as widely at, um, encompassing of most people's experience in isolation and this you know quarantine, um, because a lot of it is about like falling in love with the person you're with and you know not as many many people are there for that um but i think there's so many songs on here that are just so catchy and so unique sounding that it's hard to not just kind of leave this album wanting to go back to like each song and re-listen and catch something different like you yep. claws i think is the the popular highlight off of this obviously produced by your guy from 100 Gex, Dylan, Dylan Brady. Brady. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like a 100 Gex song, honestly. Yep. Um, but I, I thought songs like Detonate, um, I Finally Understand, um, C2O were mm-hmm. really, really catchy, really um, had moments that just felt so high. And this is really like, next level pop right so you have those kind of people like uh, those artists like taylor swift uh, who are very much in that pop sphere um and and ariana grande exists just kind of in that moment and aren't really pushing the idea forward and this just feels like charlie even in things that she just kind of conceptualizes quickly and and makes around a a time of our lives that's hopefully fleeting and, and not going to be uh too much longer but you know, we all should be prepared for it to be somewhat longer. Um, the fact that she can make something this quality of it just speaks to her level of, of art, artistry. And it's really mm-hmm. impressive. And I just left being like, the fact that she made this so quickly and it's this good is just great. So uh, I was blown away. What songs stood out to you from this? Yeah, uh, so Dylan Brady's on this a lot. I actually think the the most gexy of all these songs would be uh, Anthems. An- anthems, mm. right at the end. That you know, that's just kind of wild electronic production, really out there, uh, not not like familiar sounding, and that's exactly what a hundred X does. So that, that that's that's where that brought me. Uh, C two point is interesting because that's actually a remix, a rework of uh, Click Charlie's song mm-hmm. from last year's album, and that's something she's done before, kind of flip old songs and old concepts. It's pretty cool to follow that along. Yeah, um, I think Forever. Uh, kind of stood out. That that's probably the most traditional of all the songs, but mm-hmm. um, you know, still kind of has that Charlie Flair. But my favorite song is "I Finally Understand," which was the third single, just because that has the uh, just really catchy drum line, and it's got a much faster pitch than most of the album. And also, the chorus is just really, really catchy. So, um, I think Charlie fans, if you know, are really happy with this, of course, but. There's a lot of just wild stuff on here, as one one comes to expect from Charlie the past few years. So, um, I, I 
you know, I think if you're, if you're open to this and you're, you know, if, if you liked Billie Eilish being a little out there last year, you're probably also going to like Charlie XCX being even more out there. So, you know, the fact that this is becoming more viable um, out in the open for pop music is kind of why I've always been a big fan of hers because it's just kind of pushing those boundaries and doing that once again with this, you know, an album that she workshopped in real time with lots of her fans with live streams and zoom private zooms yeah. and stuff, you know, it's just kind of something that o- only really she could have delivered, you know? So mm-hmm. it's uh, really cool. Yeah. She's a very singular artist. And I think that seems to be the theme of what we appreciate is just when artists are doing their own thing and things that seem so unique to them, uh, you know, to kind of sum up Moses and Charlie today. Um, yeah. Great album. Look, uh, we'll be adding probably one or two songs from those two that we just talked about onto our now such a best 2020. So follow that. Um, Dave, let's move on to, I guess, a movie TV with the last dance ESPN's 10 part docu-series about Michael Jordan's final season with the Chicago bulls, the 1998, uh, championship for the bulls and spoilers. Yeah, sorry. If if you aren't familiar with Michael Jordan's career by now, uh, I'm sorry I just ruined it all for you. It was a six one, so there's there's a lot that that you missed. Um, we we talked about the first two episodes back when they aired five weeks ago. Now that now that the series is wrapped up, what are your lasting impressions of of the Last Dance? Yeah, um, the reservation i think people had going in that it would be a jordan hagiography basically out of necessity because jordan was involved in the production creation of this doc and had the sign off on the usage of all that never before seen to the public footage of the 1998 season um knowing all that going in um that has since been confirmed uh, ultimately this was made to you know bolster the jordan myth and whatnot and i don't know if anything really revealed in the last dance is super uh, new to the discourse. If anything, I think this doc is good for being entertaining and really highlighting and showing you the, the big famous moments of the, of the, of Jordan's run. Um, but if you already kind of knew that stuff, you probably aren't going to get anything super new out of this. And it's kind of funny right at the end um, of, of episode 10, part 10, uh, when Jordan's talking about how uh, he actually wanted to go back to Chicago in 99 and try for his seventh ring. And he obviously wasn't given that chance and he retired, Phil leaves, Pippins traded everyone, everyone else, you, you know, the drill, but that, that was actually a new development that people didn't really knew Jordan felt that way. He never really commented on that. And that's there right at the end. Then the doc ends. So it's like the one thing that was actually kind of new to everyone, not just people that were maybe younger and didn't, uh, experience all this like me um <laughs> that was just kind of thrown in there at the end you know so yeah. uh it's not as uh it's it, this is not an oj made in america right this is more no. just uh, like here's the hits and you get some cool footage i don't know if anything's super cutting like w- w- we could have went deeper into the gambling stuff uh it turns out he did have a wife um you did see his kids right at the end like there, there's stuff missing obviously but yeah, it was just entertaining the whole time and there's some really good moments and pieces in it. So I'm not super critical, but you have to just kind of understand how it was made. Yeah. I think my lasting impression of it is that 
it can't the way that ESPN kind of moved this around so that it, it did fill these Sundays during this, this time of quarantine um, worked out so perfectly to make this just a phenomena. And I wonder, yeah. I think it would have been successful regardless, but I wonder if it would have had the level of success right. and, and, you know, the discourse around it. If Their highest had, rated doc. Um, it, I think the meme ability of it, you know, and, and the trick that I had ne- I'd never seen a documentary of handing the iPad and having Jordan's reaction recorded live, like seeing these clips of people telling these stories, like Jerry Reinsdorf saying why, uh, why, yeah. why they couldn't bring everybody back or right. why they had to do the rebuild, all that sort of stuff was just so good. And it made it so fascinating. And yeah, all those memes about Jordan's face, like him laughing at uh, one of the clips right. um, just is so good. And I, I really think that that's probably the thing I'll have a lasting memory of. I agree with your criticisms for sure. I think, um, you know, it, it's funny because like they talk about, Rodman going out and and being with Carmen Electra or all these other women as he was out or mm-hmm. you know some of the other players and they're like drinking or gambling or things like that and then Jordan just conspicuously is like oh you know no he, he didn't uh he, it's not mentioned if he was or was not partaking in a lot of these things you know um but you hear little, little snippets of it like right. him saying before he came to practice he had like four beers and was you know a shot was playing piano and things like that so he's coming a little bit torqued up to practice or hearing the the pizza poison story or the the flu game i was like mm. <laughs> we sure we sure it was the pizza we sure like i would just like to ask uh how the fuck did they know they were making a pizza for michael jordan yeah. This is the 98th season where he has all this security and is treated, you know, like he was Michael Jackson. He can't go out anywhere, right? This was not back in the day, right? This is, they, they know their drill. Jordan's got all the security people. His trainer knows what's up. How the fuck did they know they were making Jordan's pizza to then poison it or whatever? How the hell did they know that? Doesn't make any sense. I, you don't be uh, like, hey, I got a pizza for a five-time champion, most famous athlete in the world, Michael Jordan. Can you make it fast? Like, you're joking. I mean, even even if you were ordering the pizza, unless you're a complete imbecile, you have to assume that they know where the opposing team is staying uh, hotel-wise. So you say, like, we'll pick it up, or you can deliver yeah. it, like, outside in the lobby or something like that. So at least yeah, not, like, obviously they didn't, it's not a pizza for Mike, you know? It's, right. Because all <laughs> yeah. these people were with him, like, <laughs> uh, just... And, and the fact he's like, yeah, I ate the whole thing by myself at, like, 2 in the morning. I was like, this is just... Total bullshit, uh, but he, he got he got him, him and his crew got the story straight going in. Yeah, I, I everyone was on message. Um, <laughs> you know, I I think I think the other part of it is um, it felt a little bit unfair to like expose some of the the things that other people were going through. Um, you know, they kind of talked about Dennis Rodman and some of his hardships. So yeah. of Scotty's personal stuff, even Kerr got some moments in terms of things that he went through in his life. And Michael, you know, they, they talked about him losing his dad and then they talked about him and his, uh, you know, head of security uh, right. let there and how he kind of became a father figure and how that affected Michael emotionally. But really it felt like they kind of stayed away from a lot of things in his personal life. And um, if anything, I was kind of struck by, how he felt like he needed to have his parents around so much and how it, and I'm kind of left struck with like wanting to understand that more, like why this guy who seems like he's such a, so able to handle himself so well in so many ways felt like he needed that parenting around him right. constantly. 
but then in, in turn being a parent himself didn't seem to matter that much right it's kind of funny he, he uh, wasn't interested in playing that role it seems like to his sons as much as he wanted to be parented and, and pretty yeah. so well very interesting it, it's just kind of funny too because like so like the steve kerr thing went about his dad being murdered and like mm-hmm. I, I knew that but i think that that was a great thing to have there because i don't think a lot of people knew that at all about steve kerr even though he's obviously still in the consciousness as the coach of the warriors and that that was that was really cool but like like everyone's kind of speaking with bated breath right it's like when you talk to like horace grant or you talk to kerr and it's like yeah sometimes like you know michael get on our nerves and like that's code for if he said this if you asked him that 20 years ago he's like yeah uh michael fucking pissed us off like we fucking hated him a lot of the time like mm-hmm. <laughs> like like it's almost like we lost the punch of terms of like how much he was a dick yet you do have that great moment when he's asked about that. And he kind of tears up about like his yes. uh, ethos as an athlete and what, and how he strives to win and yeah. stuff. That was a great moment. You um, don't want to play that way. Don't play that way. Uh, break. break. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Actually, I felt like that moment was the highlight of the whole yeah. thing for me. I- I've watched that moment, those two minutes back, like three or four times. It was really well done. Yeah. But like the gambling was, was undercooked. It's like, I don't oh, have yeah. a, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. Is how he said, or I have a winning problem. Whatever it was. Yeah. And so, yeah, that sounds exactly like what a gambling addict would say. I would. I wish he would have owned it a little bit more. But well, um, yeah, he, he goes on to say like, yeah, I haven't like lost my house or anything yet. And it's like, well, if just just because you haven't like lost things doesn't mean you don't have a gambling addiction. Yeah. Like it's not really how it works. But yeah, it's like we we kind of like skirt a past, and next thing you know, it's oh, it's the media. They're always uh, trying to get Jordan with his gambling stuff. It's like, well, you know, they're just uh, following up on the things Jordan actually does. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, these sketch balls that uh, he has no reason to be in contact with that he owes money to, you know, eh, whatever. Yeah. It's the media's fault. So we, we, we kind of rushed past that in my opinion, but um, yeah, it highlights all the, the major moments, all the shots and stuff. And uh, you know, I, I wish it could have, um, I kind of would have liked it to almost like, focus on like the aftermath a little bit more. Like, Jordan retires. Robin's about to be out of the league, you know? Mm-hmm. God, he has that big deal. Everyone else gets traded. Like, we kind of, I thought it kind of ended abruptly, but um, apparently Jason Heron and, and friends were uh, cutting this up the last two parts in these past five weeks. So it was not uh, actually like feature locked when ESPN moved this air uh, release date up. So, yeah, in that sense, it can't be too critical. They did a really good job still. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask just two like maybe maybe three final questions first how did you feel like scotty pippen came out of this i've seen mixed people feeling mixed ways about how scotty was portrayed huh uh no i didn't have an issue with it i mean comes from a really strong uh, really tough background and he shoots himself in the foot by signing a below market deal early because he wanted money needed security now because he had a poor family to support you know i thought that all went well and I mean, yeah, he takes it on the chin when he doesn't come back in the game, but like, uh, he also, they also like win 50 something games when Michael's playing baseball. Like, yeah. So, like, I, I, I don't, they, what's they the criticism Eastern, from? Like, I, they, I don't know. They make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think, I think where the, the criticism people are, some people are saying he doesn't come out looking that great in the dock, and some, some people are saying he does come out looking great is, I think, people feel like he was kind of portrayed as this like it's not as much of a winner you know as like he he does like he does sit out that final play because he's not getting the shot and he does have the the migraines in that one game and can't and doesn't play through it and those sort of things um but then i actually feel like the last episode really highlights what made scotty 
such a great number two and really just like such a great player in general was just his presence on the floor in a game where his back pretty much was shot um, right. makes such a difference to allowing the rest of the team to function the way it's supposed to. And, you know, even like a Scotty Pippen at like 50, 40% is better than uh, most players in the league, or at least more dangerous in the, in the opponent's eyes. So that's, I think, I think in that sense, he does come out looking pretty good. Although there are some low moments for him for sure. Right. Um, so my, my second question was going to be, what is like the moment other than maybe that, that Michael crying moment that you're going to remember most from the stock? Hmm. Uh, I like that. I like the stuff with the Pistons where he's like, I, I, I don't really care what Isaiah has to say. I don't fucking trust him or, yep. or fucking hate that guy. However exactly he phrased it. Yeah. Uh, that I was thought, really good. I thought that Piston stuff was great. And mostly just how they kind of showed him like getting over the hump, you know, how he came in and he, he was good right away, but they weren't winning championships right away. And he kind of like, kept losing to the Pistons over and over and to the Celtics in the beginning. Um, and then him finally like overcoming is, is a moment. And then also I think the moment where they showed him crying on the floor after he won the, the championship uh, on father's day, I think it was his, right. his third one. Um, that moment really like struck me for sure. And last, is there a documentary around a player or around a season like, like this or a team that you would want to see made? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I think the, the key with this is that a lot of time has passed. There was unseen footage. Mm-hmm. It's just a general cult of personality and fame. You know, it, it's not as applicable as as you might think. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, what war? What especially like a, like ten hours of material? I'm not sure what warrants that. Else, what warrant this? Yeah, I think the only only thing that really comes to mind is the Patriots um, from the last 20 years. And that, uh, that, that's going to be tough, you know, because uh, I, I think it's too close to it right now, but I think in 10, 15 years, Belichick's retired, Brady might still be playing. Uh, they, they can maybe look into what was going on. Cause I mean, not only is there the championships and the sustained level of success, but there's all the drama players getting cut early, Aaron Hernandez, um, cheating but, scandal after cheating mm-hmm. scandal. So <laughs> there's just a lot at, uh, to really go into there. So yeah, I think I that's, that's a good one. That's the main one. I couldn't really think of another one that fit. I mean, I think looking at Wayne Gretzky more in depth would be good because this his numbers are so absurd and like, uh, I mean, just say uh, I've been hearing a lot of Gretzky stats recently, and I feel like there's a good doc to be made about him, but I've never really seen one hyped about him that that's really good. So maybe that would be one. I don't know. Um, but the last dance, it's a good way to kill five, five Sundays. And it looks like ESPN has some other good documentaries coming for 30, 30 for 30 this summer. So I'm looking forward to the Mark McGuire Sosa one for sure. And, uh, maybe we'll be talking about some of those as they come, but Dave, let's, let's move on now. Uh, Cause we have to, uh, <laughs> If you didn't understand what I was saying, I was saying we're talking about Josh Trank's newest film, Capone, released this past Tuesday or Wednesday Tuesday. on demand. And uh, boy, um, Tom Hardy stars as as Fonzo. Don't call him Al. It's Fonzo. <laughs> uh, uh, Alfonso, uh, uh, Alphonse Capone, uh, famous mm-hmm. mobster. Everybody knows who he is. 
Um, but in the last year of his life, after he was released from penitentiary, his brain is rotting because of long-term syphilis, which is the effects have been slowed by penicillin treatment, but obviously cannot be cured at this point. So his mind is deteriorating, body's deteriorating. Dave, is this a good movie? Nah. <laughs> nah. nah. <laughs> okay. So since it's not a good movie, is this at least an interesting movie to you? I have a lot of meta interest in it. I think there's a lot of stuff going on with that, right? Mm-hmm. Surface level, you have Tom Hardy giving a performance that is leaning away from the natural leading man char- charisma that he has, as Hardy is wont to do. He might not be wearing a mask in the literal sense this time, but he still is hard to understand under a thick face of makeup and uh, not attractive like he is in his normal life. So yeah, it's like a classic hearty role in performance. Um, I wouldn't hold it up as, as Tom doing anything super great. Uh, we know how good he can be, but this is just kind of, overly indulgent because as you were saying he's uh hard to understand a lot of the time yeah and obviously my other interest is of everything going on with josh trank himself but yeah in terms of a movie it's uh actually a much more familiar biopic formula than you would expect from something that has all these psychological detours so it's uh i i in one sense i give trank a lot of credit for taking this kind of swing as his comeback film but yeah it it doesn't really hit yeah uh you know so this this was pushed back and pushed back you know hardy was said he was going to do this i think in 2018 and then he ended up doing venom so then this became the thing he did after venom um and there I, i felt like there was some hype around it but you know the the name change from being fonzo to or fonz to uh, Capone, uh, just like stuff around it. And I was like, uh, the more I hear these things changing, being pushed back, the less and less optimistic I feel. And obviously, Trank, you know, you kind of alluded, has had a, a, some very famous public uh, meltdowns on set and just failures as a director in general. Um, and I, I was really left from this movie just being like, I like the idea of taking the last hour of the Irishman basically in concept and being like, how, how can we like show like the after effect of, of this, uh, you know, mythical mobster who right. was one of the most famous people in the world while also simultaneously being one of the biggest criminals in the world. Um, and has still continued to be a huge, uh, portion of the zeitgeist people. So, you know, the name is going to live on in infamy. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing how that person really broke down and you know, reports say that he had the mentality of a 12 year old in this last year. Like he really had just deteriorated by the syphilis infection. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, that's a really interesting concept, but I think to kind of, you know, one mask it behind this intelligible lead who's giving an interesting performance. I, it's hard to say if it was good. I think moments I was really intrigued by moments. I just was like, what is going on here? Um, but where it really fell flat for me was building in this this other son who there's no real historical reports of there being another son this was like totally fictionalized part of the story trying to drive home this uh like 
relationship with his family that you know they are very caring about him but he doesn't really seem to have any interest in them and whether that's related to the syphilis rot or just like kind of how he felt in general i mean historical reports say him and his wife had a really good relationship but there i i didn't really feel like there was obviously any chemistry between cardellini and and hardy here even the moment when he's like i love you and she's like what like felt very much kind of like she was like are you saying like do you really mean this like very felt very odd and then it just felt like it also was kind of around this idea of like he was obviously going insane and paranoid and saying he had this money hidden that they, we don't know if he did or did not. And that whole part also just kind of felt like a mess and kind of thrown in. So it just didn't feel very well cooked to me. What, But there were, there were some really good ideas in here. And I like the concept, just feel like it really wasn't executed well. I don't know. I guess like as I'm kind of rambling through my thoughts, I just felt like there was a lot of potential for it to be good and to hit and so many pieces of it just weren't taken in the direction to pull it all together well. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Cardellini, who if you want to see her watch Dead to Me on Netflix, but like mm-hmm. it's kind of a thankless wife role, which is disappointing because May Capone is kind of this enigmatic figure. Not a lot was really known about her, particularly post the death of Al. So the fact that we couldn't get more out of that, I think is just kind of disappointing. Um, you have Jack Loudon here, who's, you know, being an FBI agent, kind of giving the exact same performance as um, the dude in Seabird gave. It was like, kind of reminded me, I was like, I had to remind myself it wasn't the same actor, but I was so, it's like, wait, I, I haven't seen this guy already. Um, and then you have like stuff like Matt Dillon, cool to see Matt Dillon, there's like a sight gag where he gouges out his eyes that has really no impact. It's yeah. literally just a sight gag. And like all, a lot of the psychological stuff we're going through, his detours and hallucinations and stuff, they don't thematically matter. They're just kind of detours and they don't really do anything. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, kind of, kind of not good. <laughs> yeah. And like Trank, Trank was happy that he had final cut on this. You know, this is a movie that, he had independently financed, made for very little money, and chopped around, and then just kind of more or less was independently released with some small partners. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if we had more cooks in the kitchen helping this, helping rein in Josh Trank's vision, the results are different. I'm not sure. Um, ultimately, Josh Trank, I just kind of think of him as the most tragic of these, like, relatively young directors that after one moment of stardom or success I mean, get thrown into franchise projects i mean trank mm-hmm. of course released chronicle 2012 yep. fantastic film immediately makes fantastic four with fox which is a huge debacle <laughs> this also happened with gareth edwards he makes monsters then immediately makes godzilla 2014 colin trevorrow safety not guaranteed jurassic world uh kathy yan makes Dead Pigs, a movie so small it didn't even get U.S. distribution. Next thing we know, she's making Birds of Prey. Uh, Ryan Coogler, Fruitvale Station. Uh, you know what? Let's do Creed, a Rocky reboot. Like This happens all the time. Chloe Zhao, she actually made two movies and then she got to do Eternals. Like, this is happening all the time. And Trank is like the... <laughs> just just, just the, the cautionary oh, tale. Yeah. Because he also, of course, was fired from the third Star Wars spinoff that was rumored mm-hmm. to perhaps be Boba Fett. He, I believe he was the very first of the now long line of people being fired or cast aside 
by a Lucasfilm. Gareth Edwards and Trevor O are also in that camp. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Trank, Trank, though, you know, like he he comes across, I think, kind of well in some of the press he's done, but overall, he just kind of released a indulgent movie that needed more reworking and editing and stuff. And you understand yeah. why uh, Hollywood's not super interested in him, at least in his current approach. So, I don't know. Yeah. You know, even even thinking about the climax of the movie, which shows Capone uh, coming out of one of those uh, lucid states, um, yep. and he actually has a Tommy gun made of gold, and uh, he it shows him uh, having a fantasy where he kills a lot of people and goes around and is kind of just like shooting up everybody at this compound that he's at. And in reality, he shot one guy in the knee with it and then fell over and it seems like he kind of passed out or something like that. But um, it just felt like kind of what they were going for with this film, which I think was showing a more reflective gangster, you know, gangster at the point of his life where he's like, look at all these awful things I did. You know, you see him really uh, appalled at one of his henchmen as they stab Johnny Torrio in the neck, you know, played by Matt Dillon. And uh, you see him. I think the whole theme with Johnny kind of pulling his eyes out type of thing and leaving it is supposed to like kind of leave him with that. Like, uh, you know, you kind of have to live with these demons and those, these, these things you've done are always going to follow you. Always going to be watching you. You're going to feel like you're carrying them around all the time. And then you kind of just see him wishing he could just go back and go back into that monster. He was not, I just feel like for what he was kind of trying to say about Capone and, and where the arc was going to then have that be like the final, like climactic scene in a way. I was just kind of like, it was kind of like the scene earlier where he just like shit the bed. Like it really just felt like that. Um, I do have to say though, one really interesting part was uh, hearing Capone do a little bit of uh, movie criticism with the wizard of Oz getting a private screening. I would love to get Capone on the pod to hear some of his movie takes. Uh, he seemed to be uh, really breaking it down. Uh, yeah. It's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, he's, he's the king of the forest uh, king and he found his courage <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh that was that was I, I loved that part and then just singing it just so ridiculous so dave just um we were talking before the pod but i wanted to get this on air this this year for movies obviously the movie theaters are shut down so we haven't seen a lot of the movies we were hoping to have seen at this point so this list could look very different uh not a great year. <laughs> I think the lows of the lows have been really low this year. Um, yeah, follow us on Letterboxd. But I think I have five to six films already that got a one and a half or lower for me, and Capone being one of them. Um, pretty, uh, pretty disappointing year, and we're not sure what the landscape's going to look like as long as reopening is going this slowly. Yeah, it does seem there. There seems to be more poor movies that we actually sought out than yeah. normal. Obviously, most of the good movies are saved for the end of the year normally, but yeah, there's been more stinkers that I actually was planning to watch than normal. So, yeah, quarantine. That's disappointing given the circumstances. You would wish that wasn't the case, but still, still been a lot of good stuff. So, if you're looking for actually good things to rent like extremely rarely sometimes always we'd recommend the assistant there's plenty of good stuff out there so COVID-19 man 2020 anyways Dave well we should wrap up there what should the people be doing for next week we'll talk about the perfume genius album that is out now 
as well as the fourth, I believe, album from the 1975 Pat's favorite band, uh, The Lovebirds, the Issa Rae, Kamal Nanjiani comedy that was sold by, I believe, Paramount, Warner, I forgot who had it, to Netflix. That'll be on Netflix on Friday. And, of course, HBO's run will be ending on Sunday. So we'll talk about those things, maybe some other things as well. But, yeah, the culture continues still. You know, we haven't uh, had the bottom fall out just yet. So that'll probably come if we stay in quarantine a long more time. That'll happen, but not yet. Not yet. Not today. Wear your masks. See you next week. Yeah.